Well, uh, at St Philip's we have uh, a youth group uh, that is uh, growing and thriving and about a year ago uh, when I was at youth group I asked the uh, teenagers a kind of hypothetical question. I uh, asked them to imagine that I was their school teacher, uh, that they were in the classroom and the question that I was um, asking the class was, uh, do you think uh, Jesus actually ever existed as a, a real person? Uh, and so it was a hypothetical exercise. And I said, stand to uh, the, the left of the room if you think he definitely did, and stand to the right of the room if you think he definitely didn't uh, exist. And um, if you're 50 50, stand in, in the middle of the room. Now, I was asking them to answer not for themselves, but um, for their hypothetical class, where they thought uh, they would go. And so when it was time to move, uh, without hesitation, they all uh, moved, and they moved uh, to the far right, as far as they could, all of them, without any hesitation. In other words, Jesus never really uh, even existed. He didn't even exist. Um, Well, uh, Obviously, if he never even existed, then uh, he never really rose from the dead uh, either, if he, if he couldn't have existed. And yet here we are uh, this morning. Uh, there's a lot of scepticism around uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In fact, that scepticism doesn't even reach as far as um, kind of classrooms in secular state schools, but it reaches as far as the former Archbishop of Perth, a guy called uh, Peter Carnley. Uh, he actually wrote a book called The Structure of Resurrection belief. Uh, and, and he said, that the resurrection, guys, the resurrection, it's, it's, it's a subjective and spiritual feeling, uh, a present experience, not a past event. Uh, you can fact check that uh, if you want, uh, but, but that's true. Uh, in other words, he's saying that, that the resurrection is not so much a historical fact, it's a subjective and a spiritual feeling. But I want to say to you this morning that it's both. Uh, it's a fact and it's a feeling. Now, if you think about it, these two ingredients, facts uh, and feelings, are really the two ingredients that anyone uses to become convinced about anything. It's always the objective and the subjective, the, the intellectual and the personal. There are facts and their feelings. So, for example, imagine uh, if you have to interview someone for a new job at work. Uh, there are five candidates. You have to do the uh, interviews to pick the, the one candidate. And so you look at all the candidates, you do all the interviews, you cross-check their references. Maybe you even do some tests or some um, analysis to, to see uh, who stands. And that's the, that's the rational, scientific and intellectual side. But that's not all you need, is it? You, you need to know well, what's your gut feeling about this person? How, how are they going to get along with all of the rest of the team? How do you get along with them? How do they come across? See, these things are art, more art than they are science. So you're doing the interviews. You've looked at things uh, scientifically and factually. Uh, you've thought about it from a personal and relational point of view. But there comes a point after all this and all your due diligence where... You just have to commit. You have to surrender. You have to take a risk. And so the objective and the subjective, that can only get you so far. It's only after you commit, maybe uh, three months down the track, six months, 12 months, after you commit, whether you can really know whether or not you've made the right choice, even after all of your due diligence. Well, friends, here's the thing. It's the same with the Lord Jesus. 
We are encouraged to look at things from an objective and critical point of view. All questions welcome. You need to look at things from a personal point of view and a relational point of view, but at some point, you just have to commit. You have to make a decision one way or another. And so that's basically where we're going this morning. We're going to look at two things. Uh, Firstly, that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. But then I want us to look at what the resurrection of Jesus means personally. So have a look. The resurrection of Jesus Christ objectively happened. Uh, There's been this resurgence recently amongst some popular intellectuals of this idea that, that the biblical story was powerful, even if it wasn't historical. In other words, uh, we can glean all kinds of helpful insights for psychology and sociology, uh, morality, even if it's only symbolic or spiritual. But the original authors of the New Testament would say, no, 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 the reason why it's so helpful in all of those ways is because it's true. Uh, We read from the Gospel of Luke today. It's an ancient manuscript well verified as far as classical historians will go. And he, in writing this um, ancient manuscript today, seems to go to great lengths to show us that this is not a vision, this is not a fairy tale, uh, this is not uh, some kind of dream, and not a nice story. This is something that actually happened. So I want to take a few moments to show you how Luke tries to go to these great lengths to show that this is fact. This is history. And the first thing is that the form of this account, Luke's gospel, is not one of legend, but one of oral testimony. So we read from the very last chapter, chapter 24, but I want to take you to the introduction to the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, and have a look at what he writes in in the very introduction to his story. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. It's a great introduction to a fairy tale, isn't it? Really gets you in the mood once upon a time. This is not a fairy tale. This is a factual, historical account, not a fairy tale. Did you know that in the courtroom setting today, there's, there's one type of evidence that if there's enough of it and it all points in one direction, that for hundreds of years, courts have been so confident in this kind of testimony that they're willing to use just this kind of testimony to decide the fate of the accused. Any guesses for what type of testimony that is? Eyewitness testimony, circumstantial eyewitness. There's this guy, Richard Borkham, uh, is a world-class historian, a scholar and a professor at St. Andrews, the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And he's written a book called this, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels as eyewitnesses testi- Eyewitness Testimony. And one of the things that he writes uh, and he points out in the book is that 2,000 years ago, historians didn't use footnotes, Right? They didn't use 
footnotes. You know footnotes, right? So, so people can kind of fact check what you're writing, cross check what you're saying. If you've ever written an essay, uh, you know that um, you put in the footnotes to bolster your argument and so that people can verify and cross check what you're saying. Well, well, they say he did, they didn't use footnotes back then, but they did use something else. Guess what they would do? They would mention eyewitnesses to what they were saying so that people could go and fact-check with the eyewitnesses as to whether what they were saying was true. And the New Testament is full of the ancient form of footnotes. It's full of eyewitness testimony. Please see what Luke says here. I've carefully investigated. Uh, Sorry, this bit here. Um, I've handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. And so Luke fills his account with eyewitnesses. And we don't see this because we use footnotes. But back then, this was the footnote, ancient form of a footnote, so that people could fact check. And so um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, in one, it's one of the first epistles. In 1 Corinthians fifteen six here, he says... Um, Jesus appeared after the resurrection to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Why does he say most of whom are still living? You might say, what if he'd said, and they've all died, sorry. (laughs) Most of whom are still living. Guess what? 500 of them. We don't have cars back then. We don't have planes. They can't have gotten too far. Go and ask for yourself. Again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, John chapter 18, verse 10, it says, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest. Now, talk about celebrity, high priest. You probably can't get any more of a celebrity than the high priest in Jerusalem. And what did Peter do? Drew a sword, drew it, struck the high priest servant, cutting off his right ear. And then it puts in brackets, the servant's name was Malchus. Guys, go and ask him. Go and ask him if Peter chopped off his ear and he'll tell you. You can fact check this. Well, the same goes for the entire Gospel of Luke. And by the way, we want to gift you with a Bible. Start with Luke and read it, and you can see these eyewitness accounts for yourself. But in our story today, in verse 18, it says that these disciples are walking down the road with this guy, this stranger, and then it says, then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered Jesus. Whose name was Cleopas. I mean, You could just edit that out. And one of them answered Jesus. But no, one of them whose name was Cleopas. This is riddled all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Remember at the the start he said, I've spoken to many eyewitnesses so that you may know the certainty. Guys, I'm so confident in what I'm telling you that I want you to be able to fact check every single bit of it. Go and ask him. Check it out for yourself. So the Gospels are not in the literary genre of fairy tale or legend or fiction. It's in the literary genre of oral history. But the other thing that's so compelling about this story is the role of women in the story points to the reliability of the historical account. 
It's easy for us to gloss over the role of women in the story. I don't know during the reading if you noticed just the preponderance of women like Mary in the story. But allow me to share with you some quotes, two quotes from the first and second centuries that encapsulate the attitude to women from that day. Here's the first one. Josephus from the first century, a historian Let not the testimony of women be admitted. This is mostly what we have in Luke 24. It's the testimony of women. And Josephus, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Uh, If you find that offensive, I'm sure we all find that offensive. Well, you have Jesus to thank for that. Because he saw in his divine providence and in his wisdom fit to entrust the testimony of Jesus' life, death and resurrection to women. Of whom Josephus said, let not the the testimony of women be admitted. Celsus said uh, later, Christians uh, earlier, sorry, Christians are able to convince only the foolish, dishonourable and stupid, only slaves, women and little children. And yet the testimony and the first-hand witnesses that we have to the resurrection of the Son of God is from women. And the irony of all these testimonies, I hope you see the stark contrast, in that in Luke's testimony of uh, the story, it's the women who are wise and honourable and dignified. And how does Jesus speak to the men? In verse 25. Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. Why didn't you believe that the women, what the women said? They told you. Remember what it says in the text? It seemed to them like an idle tale when the women told them this story. And you say, oh, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe. You should have listened to them. But here's the point, friends. If the disciples were making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, and they knew that no one would listen to a woman's testimony, including themselves, the disciples didn't believe, then why on earth would they tell the story with women as the primary key witnesses? Why would they do that? Talk about shooting yourself in the foot, unless it's what actually happened. So I hope you can see that the resurrection of Jesus objectively happened. If you're not convinced, please look into it. It's an open book. Just ask all the questions. In fact, we're running Alpha in a few weeks from now. All questions welcome. It's open. It's verifiable. Ask your toughest question. Bring it on. That's what Luke is saying in writing this gospel. But I want you to see also what the resurrection of Jesus means personally. It's a wonderful image in this story. These disciples, downhearted, brokenhearted, walking along the road, and then Jesus is walking along with them. And they don't even know it. Uh, You know, walking in the Bible is a powerful image. You go for walks with people. It's an image of intimate friendship and fellowship. 
Uh, So you've got in Genesis 3, verse 8, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We were were made in Adam and Eve in the garden to walk with him in the cool of the day. In Genesis 17, verse 1, Abraham, uh, God says to Abraham, Abraham, walk before me. And famously, Micah 6, verse 8, the prophet, what does the Lord require but to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. Brothers, this is what we were made for. Relationship, intimacy, friendship, walking with him wherever we go. And here we have the one who flung stars into space come alongside these discouraged and despairing disciples and walking with them and they didn't know it was him. So briefly, let me show you how personal this is because to walk with Jesus means to be befriended and totally loved. They're so discouraged, they're so depressed and I love the the thought that the disciples are talking to Jesus and they don't even know that it's him. You've got the disciples listening to Jesus and he's talking to them, they're hearing his voice and they don't even know that it's him. It's not until their eyes are open that they realise that Jesus has been with them all along. And they say, we're not our hearts burning within us as he spoke to us along the road. He was with them all of the way in every step. To walk with Jesus means being befriended and totally loved. To walk with Jesus is to be overwhelmed with joy and hope. Why, why that story? Why, why are they running so fast? Why are they just? Why, why are they running all over the place? You remember Peter? That the men they were like skeptical when the, the women came. What did Peter do? He ran to see if he was alive. In verse forty-one in our story, it says they were when they realised that Jesus was alive. They were amazed and in disbelief because of their joy. Just two days ago, I found out a. An amazing true story. One April evening in 2006, there was a group of university students, uh, this is in the US, who were driving down the freeway when a tractor trailer slammed into their van, killing five of the passengers and leaving one of them critically injured and in a coma. Obviously, Whitney, one of the deceased, her family was devastated upon hearing the news that their daughter was among the dead. After the accident, they couldn't bear to look at her body and so they had a closed casket funeral with over a 1,000 people from all over to grieve and to say goodbye to Whitney. Laura was also in the car and when her family found out that she was the one who had survived, they were overjoyed and they, they rushed to the hospital to be with her. She was in a coma but they stood by her for weeks praying that she would wake up and, and talk to them. And finally the day came. She, she woke up and then she started to take small steps towards recovery. And, and then one day she was able to feed herself and she was even playing Connect Four. So she was becoming more and more alert. But as time went on, her family became concerned. Something seemed to come back to Laura, but other comments that the family made just didn't seem to register with her. And then One day, Laura was told to write her name on a piece of paper and to everyone's shock, the young lady wrote on the piece of paper, Whitney. 
Laura and Whitney looked almost exactly the same. They had similar builds. They had long blonde hair. They had similar facial features that, because of the car crash, had made them difficult to tell apart. And in the hours after the car crash, the the coroner confused the girl who had died with the girl who had lived. It's almost too hard to believe. Whitney's family had even visited with Laura's family, Laura, at the hospital in her bed, not knowing that they were looking at their own daughter, covered in IVs and tubes. They were right there in her presence, staring her in the eyes, but they didn't know it was their own beloved girl. And when they finally figured out who she was, they were utterly shocked, but then filled and overwhelmed with with joy and and peace. All that time they spent grieving while they thought she was dead, but she was alive. If only they had known she was alive, they would have experienced overwhelming joy and peace. If only they'd recognised their daughter as they looked at her in her hospital bed, as they stared at her, if they realised it was her, all of their sadness would have been transformed into gladness. She's not dead, she is alive. Can you imagine what it was like for the disciples on the Emmaus Road? Now, I know there's mixed emotions about that story, especially as you think about Laura's family, but can I tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning, there were no mixed emotions for the disciples on the Emmaus Road other than unadulterated, overwhelming joy. He is not dead He's not dead, he's alive. They had walked with him for three years, non-stop. There were long distances, there weren't any cars. They had spent so much time with this man. They began to know him, they loved him, they worshipped him, they believed in him and on this road to Emmaus, they believed that he was dead. But then we're told Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. He was right there in their midst and they didn't even know it. Just as he is today through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, right here in our midst. He had said to them, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And what do you know? Verse 41 when they knew that, found out it was Jesus, they were amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, a joy that Jesus said, no one will take it away. I've conquered death. And so I'm here to tell you this morning from personal experience that to walk with the Lord Jesus through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is indeed to be overwhelmed with peace and to be overwhelmed with joy. Even in the darkest night of the soul. I've had a few of those, I promise. But to walk with Jesus and to have him alongside you, even when you can't see him, to hear his voice and to cry out to him is to know a peace that surpasses understanding. And so as our Lord Jesus, by the Spirit, stretches out his hand to you this morning and as you put your hand in his I pray that the God of peace and the God of hope 
may give you in all joy and peace in believing, that you may be overflowing and filled through the power of the Holy Spirit, overflowed with hope and joy and peace, because he is not dead, he is alive. Amen.